Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, we're just a few months away before Ontarians head to the polls, and based on his recent politics and policies, what does Doug Ford's re-election platform look like? Since Russia invaded Ukraine, India has abstained on every UN vote condemning Russia's actions. How could India's stance on Russia backfire in the future? And two in five Canadian workers say they would look for another job if they were forced to return to the office full-time. Sylvia Gonzalez-Zamora, partner with KPMG Canada, joins us to talk about that. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Doug Ford is starting to, uh, well, he's starting a campaign, basically, for the election, which is coming up in June, uh, to talk about all the political goings on. So pleased to welcome back to the program Peter Grafe. Uh, Peter is a professor of political science at McMaster University. Uh, Peter, pleasure to have you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Yes, thank you very much. Well, to start off, if we could, with uh, the provincial situation, Peter, and uh, as we head in, we already know, of course, the first week of June, there's going to be an election, and uh, Premier Doug Ford is going to be heading into this. He says he's got the strongest uh, team ever. Well, it's only a second election, so I guess that's that kind of narrowing the scope on this, but one of the people that won't be there is uh, his Deputy Premier and uh, Health Minister, Christine Elliott, uh, who said she's not going to be running again. And here's what the Premier had to say about Christine Elliott. What an incredible person. Uh, Christine is. From the day we got elected, she's been shoulder to shoulder with me, side by side. We've been connected at the hip for the last two years throughout this pandemic. And I couldn't ask for a, a better person, a better friend, a leader, someone with integrity, and, and just an honest, honest person. She's worked 16 years for the people of Ontario. Yeah, but she's not going to be running this time. And uh, another high-profile minister, of course, uh, Rod Phillips, uh, stepped aside just uh, a few weeks ago as well. Uh, Peter, do you read anything into this when some of the high-profile folks, the people, a lot of people described Rod Phillips as, as Premier Ford's right-hand man in the cabinet. Uh, do we read anything into the fact that they don't want to be part of the team anymore? I mean, you could, uh, but there's always other factors, right? So, I mean, if you take Christine Elliott, uh, having been a Minister of Health over the past two years, uh, must have been an incredibly, uh, you know, draining experience. And, you know, as someone who had had three runs at the, you know, leadership of the, the conserv provincial Conservative Party, probably got a sense, uh, you know, if she was at the hip of uh, Doug Ford, that he wasn't, you know, interested in, say, making her uh, finance minister, you know, or a more, uh, you know, important role. I could understand, you know, why she would decide to move on. I mean, similarly, uh, you know, Rod Phillips got in a lot of trouble for his travels uh, over the first Christmas after the pandemic. Mm -hmm. You know, he probably figured he could make a lot more money in the private sector without, uh, you know, some of the difficulties of uh, of being in the public sector. And again, uh, you know, probably didn't see a, an entirely bright future. Uh, it's going to be a difficult reckoning time for provincial finance ministers as we come out of the pandemic. So again, he might have also felt that uh, he was better elsewhere than, than trying to, you know, carry certain uh, loads. But, you know, maybe also an indication that some of these more serious, if you like, cabinet ministers in the, in the cabinet uh, are not entirely happy with the leadership of, of Doug Ford and, and are not confident that it's going to be a, an easy second term in terms of dealing with these challenges, you know, given the quality of uh, Doug Ford's leadership. And the point about Christine Elliott running for the leadership of a couple of different times unsuccessfully, clearly, uh, I think is a very valid point. I mean, you got to figure at some point, just about anybody who's elected to public office may want to gravitate to the top job, whether it's the mayor, municipally, or the premier, or prime minister, whatever the case might be. And that door is pretty much slammed for her now, isn't it? Well, I mean, you never say never, but uh, oh, yeah. I mean, given where she's at in her career, whether she really has a desire to do that. And again, particularly after, I mean, I can't think of a, a less pleasant job in government over the past two years and yeah. to be the Minister of Health and having to deal with these crisis situations with each wave uh, and, you know, all the criticism that you come as you make these decisions without a lot of data about, you know, what direction do you go with different, you know, mandates and measures. So uh, you, you can understand why there's also a degree of burnout and a decision to say, well, do I really want to now spend uh, a month this spring, you know, knocking on every door in my riding and then, you know, another four years of what? Yeah, exactly. We don't know exactly what's going to be happening there. Uh, it's it's interesting, though, when you look at the polling, and, and as we, you know, mark the second anniversary of the pandemic, uh, 
politicians of all stripes, of course, have taken a lot of heat for the policies they put in place. Uh, even yesterday, or the, earlier this week, the announcement of what uh, dropping the mask mandate uh, by the 21st of this month. Uh, we noticed that Doug Ford was not there for that announcement. And maybe I understand why now, because there's a lot of pushback from people, medical experts saying he shouldn't have done it this way. Yet he still has a very comfortable lead in the polls. Uh, he dipped a little bit, I guess, about a year or so ago, but it, it's pretty steady and pretty comfortable. Are you surprised by that, Peter? Uh, I'm not too surprised by that. I mean, you know, all our politicians got a bit of a bump uh, with the pandemic. Uh, you know, they, you know, were, were looking like stronger leaders. And so I think a lot of the difficulties that Mr. Ford had in the first couple of years as premier, you know, were forgotten. Um, so, I mean, at the moment, most polls that I look at have them sort of, sort of in the mid-30s. Uh, you yeah. know, if we consider that sort of the baseline, I think, of conservative support, the bedrock is probably about 30%. In the last election, he got 40%. Um, you know, I'm not too surprised that he is uh, where he is, particularly, you know, with the Liberal Party, where you know, I think Mr. Ford got a lot of his, you know, additional bump in the last election has been, you know, fairly missing in action, not having uh, party status at Queen's Park and with, you know, Stephen Del Duca pretty much unknown to, to Ontarians. So, you know, for those factors, uh, you know, I think mid-30s is might maybe where you'd expect to find him. And I guess, you know, the question uh, for the conservative strategists is, are they starting from, you know, that 35% and are they looking for the extra three or 4% that would get them into majority territory here in, in the province? Uh, or is that a kind of soft 35% where there's, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, McGinty conservatives, if you like, uh, who you know, are, are really waiting to see what the Liberals put on the table? I, I agree. I don't think uh, the Liberals are going to get out of the penalty box anytime soon. There just doesn't seem to be any, any indication. Plus, Ford's got the power of incumbency, and especially, you know, this week we've seen that. I mean, he's made some pretty big announcements about where he wants to spend money over the next number of years. Uh, it's not everything I agree with. I know a lot of people have got some concerns about building new highways through Greenbelt and, and, and protected lands, etc. Uh, but that's, that's what his policy is. How does a, a guy like a Doug Ford who, as you said, had a rather tumultuous first year and a half or so, uh, and then has had some rough times here. How do you craft a platform like this and simply say, because I, I guess generally people are, are comfortable with him, uh, not so much comfortable maybe with the opposition leaders, uh, but a lot of the stuff he's proposing right now is, is stuff that the publicity or the public relations polls, I'm sure, just don't seem to be agreed. The highways, uh, the you know, the environmental policies that he's had, a number of different things like this seem to run contrary to what Ontarians are looking for right now. Does does he just say, well, this is who I am, or does he try to, to modify his, his stand on some of these issues? Well, I mean, you know, again, the, the you know, the relevant standard is not getting to 50% of Ontarians agreeing with you. It's finding you know, 35 to 40% that give you a majority government under our electoral system. And in that kind of context, running a, a platform of saying, you know, I got us through the pandemic, uh, better times are coming, and look, I'm making these investments in roads so we can get around better in infrastructure, and that's, you know, that's jobs for the boys. Um, there's, you know, there's, I think, a, a constituency there that's close to what he needs to, to win a majority. So... I think the danger for him is, and what leaves he kind of leaves open with these highways, as you point out, is, is that it does give a space for the liberals to grow back uh, and not have to necessarily go a lot into the the, the space of the NDP uh, by making the argument that you know they actually are concerned about uh, urban sprawl and maybe have a replay of the 2003 uh, provincial election where you know Dalton McGuinty was successful in winning you know, some uh, borderline liberal conservative seats around, say, the Oak Ridge's Moraine on, on you know, questions mm -hmm. of sprawl. So, you know, I think there's a danger there for Doug Ford. But uh, at the same time, I think he figures figures in the in the 905, if he can promise to save a, a few minutes on people's commutes, and there's the idea that there will be public money for construction jobs. You know, he's bringing together some, you know, parts of his uh, of his electoral coalition. Let's uh, pivot, if we could, uh, with uh, Peter Grave, of course, political science professor at McMaster University, uh, to the federal scene. Uh, yesterday, Jean Charest uh, made it official. He's he's in the race now uh, to run as leader of the, the federal conservative party. We're told Patrick Brown uh, will make his announcement, and it will be, yeah, he's in uh, as of Sunday. Uh, Leslie Lewis is already there, of course, as an official candidate. Pierre Poilievre, uh considered the front runner right now. Uh, it, I'm getting the sense that this is really an election, first of all, certainly to elect a leader, but also to make a determination, Peter, as to what kind of party the Conservatives are going to be. You know, the, as Shari said yesterday, this is a divided party, and there seems to be a very, very strong divide uh, between the, the 
the hard right and those who think that there should be a more moderate side of the conservative party. What do you make of that? Uh, well, I'm not sure if, I mean, I guess that's his bet, right? His bet is that he's yeah. divided and so that there is a more moderate side that will come out and elect him leader. Um, and, you know, given the, the manner in which uh, they organize the leadership elections in the Conservative Party, it is possible that he can go and find votes, uh, you know, in places where they don't elect uh, Conservative MPs uh, regularly, uh, you know, to put them over the top. But, uh, you know, I would say in some ways he's imagining the divided side of that party. I think it's actually a fairly united party, but around, uh, you know, a fairly conservative uh, platform that seems to be out of touch with where you need to be to win an election in this country. So I think in a way what, you know, Jean Charest is trying to do in, in this campaign is to, you know, bring into being, uh, you know, a, a bunch of conservatives who would support uh, a party in a somewhat different space, a bit closer to the liberals. And it will be interesting to see whether he can go and either, you know, find people within the existing conservative party who who want to win and, and are willing to, uh, you know, change uh, what they make most fundamental, or whether he signs up a lot of people in Ontario and Quebec and uh, sort of urban Vancouver and in the eastern provinces to, to uh, you know, temper what I, I'd say is a party that's actually pretty uh, comfortable with where it's at. But they seem, to, well, in the last three elections especially, of course, they just seem to have trouble getting votes in urban centres, especially here in Ontario and, and, and east, eastward of, of that. Uh, they do too badly, I guess, in the western provinces. Do they mould their, their policies in to try to attract that? And that, that brings us into the realm of things like, uh, you know, public transit. Uh, environmental issues certainly still big uh, in, in urban centres and people concerned about things like highway construction and sprawl and things of this nature. Uh, the child care plan, uh, they, they seem to be off based with an awful lot of those things right now. Do, do you think they realize that and they think they have to think differently here? Uh, well, I mean, I, I suspect there's, you know, a division of opinion on, on those on those questions. Uh, you know, has the issue been that they haven't had the right messenger? Uh, and so certainly, you know, people uh, who take that view will say, look, Aaron O'Toole changed, you know, the party's policy towards the center compared to Andrew Scheer, and he did worse in the greater yeah. Toronto area. So... You know, it's it's really the it's a salesperson, not not the the policies per se. Um, but yeah, I, I suspect you know there is the idea of you know what what are the grounds on which that you can craft a a winning strategy. And I mean, we see you know uh, some thinkers win the part within that party, like Ken Buzzenkool, who you know has done a lot of strategy. Uh, you know, now uh, heading up uh, you know the idea of of a kind of a clean energy conservatism. Uh, you know, saying well, we need to be much more serious on something like the carbon tax. Uh, and come up with, you know, some real policies around climate change that are, you know, seriously conservative. So, I mean, I think there are thinkers in that party who who recognize the need to move on those uh, those issues. But, I mean, as we saw with the the reply to Charest's announcement yesterday, you know, what comes out? Well, he's a liberal because Charest is a liberal in their view, not only because he was a leader of the Liberal Party of Quebec, uh, but because of his positions on uh, wanting to keep the long, long gun registry uh, you know, and, the, and uh, he brought in a carbon tax and the like. So there's, I think, mm -hmm. part of the base of that party who feels that, you know, ultimately, uh, given our uh, political system, eventually the liberals are going to fall down and the conservatives will get elected. And so why not wait and stick true to the, the kind of core policies uh, that they like best? You just want to make sure that we're in power and that starts to happen. I, I want to be the leader when that finally happens. You may fall into the job, but you want the job. And I guess that's the ultimate goal. Uh, but but you, when you look at, at handicapping this, and I understand you and I have talked about this in the past, the, the old phrase that, that a week is a lifetime in politics, and there's a lot of weeks between now and, and the next election. Do they look for somebody who's going to, to win that next election? I know that's that's the stated goal every time, but they've got to have some some second, second thoughts. I mean, they thought Shear was going to win, and he didn't. They thought O'Toole was going to win. And like you say, he, he did worse. I mean, they win the popular vote, but they don't win it where it counts. Do they look at a guy like Pierre Polyev, who may be the best of both worlds? He's he's a francophone certainly, but he's got Western roots. He was born in Calgary. Uh, is is he a compromise candidate? Uh, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to see him as a compromise candidate. Uh, I mean, he has taken a few positions, you know, in more recent years that have made him less popular. For instance, with the uh, kind of the more uh, morally conservative part of of the party, but I presume they would choose him over over Jean Charest. Uh, yeah. You know, but also, you know, someone who uh, in some ways uh, is really quite aggressive in trying to court new uh, votes into the Conservative Party. And we see him running very hard on this policy of inflation hurting the working class is a sort of an argument that Polyevre is making at uh, the moment to, to try and capture, I think, more of the Canadian working class vote and 
really lock it into the Conservatives. So, you know, there is some potential for growth, uh, but there's also, you know, plenty of uh, moments in the past where uh, he's made comments and statements that are likely to come back to haunt him, uh, you know, in terms of really, you know, pushing the truth a bit far. I mean, which is not uncommon for politicians, but even for politicians kind of maybe really <laughs> massaging it. Um, you know, those kinds of situations, uh, you know, maybe raise a question of whether he actually has, uh, you know, he has a maturity for the role. Um, he's certainly assembled a very strong uh, set of endorsements. I think about 40 members of the Conservative caucus have endorsed him as compared to about eight for Jean Charest. Um you know, but again, uh, you know, to what extent he has the capacity to lead a team as opposed to being a bit of a lone wolf, uh, you know, doing his own thing and running his own uh, sort of PR programs around the policies he likes. So uh, I would have to consider him the favorite at the moment uh, in terms of the degree of endorsements. Uh, the polling of conservative members shows him also uh, very strong. Um, but again, it, it remains to be seen because the conservative uh, election process doesn't give every member the same vote, right? It gives every exactly. riding the same weight, uh, at least if they have 100, 100 members. And so, you know, there's many ridings in this country with, you know, less than 100 members where if Jean Charest was successful in signing people up, he could be very strong. And having thousands of members voting for Pierre Paul Yever in Calgary, uh, you know, or Saskatoon isn't going to do a lot to improve his, his, his case. So, yeah, there's a lot exactly. of time in this campaign. Um, I think Cherez is Cherez really putting forward the Tom Mulcair story that I'm an ace who can get us government, and it'll be interesting yeah. to see whether conservatives buy that. Exactly. Uh, I will have to leave it there. We're just about out of time, but uh, lots more to discuss in the weeks ahead. As always, Peter, thank you so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Peter Graf, uh, professor of political science at uh, McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We continue to uh, watch and. and shocked by the atrocities committed by the Russians in Ukraine. And uh, the stories are, are simply horrific. I know that uh, the Prime Minister and his uh, entourage, a couple of the cabinet ministers were over there yesterday actually talking to some of the people that had left uh, Ukraine. And uh, it's it's gut-wrenching uh, to hear their stories. One of the subplots in this whole situation, though, is uh, the reaction and the actions, or inactions, I guess, in, in some cases, of uh, some of the other major powers in the world, uh, China and India specifically, as to where they're going to align themselves. And uh, one of the big question marks is, is India's failure to take a hard stance against Russia? And uh, some are not surprised by this because there seems to be some sort of an alliance. But what is going on here and what's at play uh, between these two countries? Uh, when there have been votes at the United Nations to condemn what Russia is doing, uh, India has abstained both times. Try to get some clarity on what's going on. We're so pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Anita Singh. Uh, Dr. Singh is a fellow with the Center for the Study of Security and Development at Dalhousie University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us this morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, are you surprised by by the, the the way that India is handling themselves in this situation? And we know that there is a, a previous history with Russia, and we can get into that in more detail in just a couple of seconds. But uh, there was some anticipation uh, that, that India may actually come down on, on the side of NATO and said, this is terrible. They don't seem to want to be able to do that. Uh, is there is there a policy behind this? Is there a long term motive here with uh, with Prime Minister Modi? I, I think you've hit the nail on the head on a couple fronts. Um, I think India is playing a wait and see approach here uh, for some of the reasons that you just you just alluded to. First, there's a long term relationship between India and Russia, um, in which you know they've sort of um, established that they don't want to interfere in each other's. Uh, relationships and in, in their and their foreign policies, um, and they do have a very strong military relationship, and this goes back from the uh, to the Cold War. In addition to that, India's major focus in its own regional security is China, and it sees Russia as a balancing act to you know any future um, uh, implications of you know military aggression by China. And so taking all those things into consideration, it's being very hesitant to condemn the actions of Russia at this moment. I know people are getting tired of the chess analogy when we start talking about, uh, you know, global politics, but it, it certainly seems to be in play here, doesn't it, Doctor, where they're basically trying to protect their flank by developing a relationship or, or maybe even, you know, nurturing a relationship with Russia because they're concerned about what China may or may not do. And, and as you mentioned, that, that's actually been manifested. I mean, the, during the India-Russia annual summit, uh, both Putin and uh, Modi uh, reaffirm what they call a special and privileged strategic relationship. 
And uh, there's a lot of money involved, $5.4 billion, I guess it was, for missile defense. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, 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 that's the supply chain, I guess, for them, for military arms, isn't it? It really is. And, uh, and for example, if you look at the composition of the Indian military as of now, um, most of uh, estimates are between 60 and 80 percent of the military is dependent on Russian armaments. Uh, over 90 percent of, for example, India's uh, tanks are Russian built. And so while there have been strides to make uh, a stronger military relationship with the United States, this is a long game for them. It's decades in the making to be able to reduce its reliance on Russia. Um, And so in the immediate circumstance, it doesn't seem prudent for India to want to make major changes in the way that it's sort of established its military um, bases. One observer, one of your uh, American colleagues, uh, called this relationship between the two, uh, and especially India's... uh, I guess, reticence to get involved in this and, and take aside a reciprocity of silence, uh, which I think probably pretty much captures what you've been talking about here is a, you don't want to bite the hand that feeds you, do you? No, that's right. And and if you actually go further back um, throughout, like I said, the Cold War, there are a number of times, a number of times when the uh, United Nations had resolutions against India for, you know, um, uh, military action in Kashmir. And Russia was the country that stood behind um, India, in addition to this military relationship that we've been talking about, or the, the trade relationship and military affairs that we've been talking about. You sort of see, again, what you're alluding to um, is this special relationship where India knows that the that it's been backed by Russia before. And it is still considering its relationship with the West, particularly the EU and the United States, as kind of fickle. They're not 100% sure where they stand with them at any given point, uh, given, for example, um, the Americans' relationship with Pakistan and um, those sorts of complexities. And so I don't think they feel like they can rely on a swift sea change in their foreign policy towards the West just yet. I would just play a little what if here, if we could, for just a second, Doctor. Uh, China is seemingly wanting to flex their muscles in the in their part of the world. Uh, you know, they've talked about Taiwan, and and certainly other areas are very concerned about that. They've pretty much tried to lay claim to just about all the waters around there too. Uh, you know, getting their their selves in a knot here after they spotted U.S. and Canadian ships actually in what they consider to be Chinese waters. If they were to be in action, and there's no anticipation at this stage that it would be, if, if China were to, to move in some way, shape, or form against uh, India, would Russia actually intercede? It's it's hard to say, given that they're pretty much engaged their entire military um, on this incursion in Ukraine. And that's actually what, what I was talking about when I said that India is playing the look-see game, uh, wait-and-see game, in that... Uh, China and Russia have also developed their relationship recently. China also, as you noted earlier, abstained from the vote in um, the United Nations, both votes in the United Nations. And so India's big concern is that the closer that China and Russia become, the more precarious their position becomes. Uh, And so it's playing, like I said, this dual game. It's a balancing act for India right now um, to both maintain its ties with Russia to ensure that Russia would step up if there was a problem with China, but then also building its relationship with the West. And I had sort of mentioned with e- with the EU and the United States to make sure that, you know, there is a mutual interest in um, holding China back from, um, you know, from, I guess, its, its broader ambitions in, in Asia. Yeah, I, I mean, we're all looking at China right now to say, hey, there's a weakness. And, and nations tend to do that, don't they? When they see somebody who's otherwise occupied, uh, and as the U.S. is, and NATO is, for that matter, with what's happening with Ukraine, uh, they may figure this is a good time to make a move. And they're going to be watching, I guess, with great uh, interest to see uh, how that happens in case they decide. I don't I don't know if India is in their crosshairs, but Taiwan certainly is on the table. But it's it's somewhat interesting about that. But I, I guess the, the Russians, based on what they've done in Ukraine, I mean, it's horrific, you know, the crimes they're committing there. But they don't want to open a second front. I mean, they can't be worried about Eastern Europe at the same time uh, looking at the uh, the Indian border here, too. So there's, they could be stretched to the limit in situations like that. It's just you never know what's going to happen in, in this this game, do you, When from one to another and what the long-term strategies are. Yeah. And, and you know, they're, the way they've phrased, the Russians, sorry, have phrased um, 
this concept of territorial integrity is on one hand, when they speak to their allies, including India, they talk about, you know, recognizing territorial integrity, that language has been uh, mimicked by the Indians. But when they talk, when the Russians talk about Ukraine, they talk about Ukraine as already part of their territorial integrity. And so they're really playing a narrative game here. And I think to at this point, it really does favor the Indian position, which is why I think there's um, uh, a lack of interest in ruffling feathers. What does this do to the to the Indian-U.S. relationship? As you mentioned, Modi has tried to reach out there. I know Biden's very interested. Everybody's interested in, in India as an emerging economy. Uh, and, and you want to forge those relationships right now. Uh, is, is this slowing that relationship down? Are, are the, U, the U.S. disappointed, should we say, in India's performance? So I think externally, the U.S. has to show disappointment with anyone that goes against their stance uh, on Russia and the situation in Ukraine. I think internally with diplomatic channels, there's more of an indication that that um, uh, that the West understands where India is coming from. Um, so, for example, uh, um, president of the president of France had met with Prime Minister Modi to talk about their position um, on the on the Ukraine and, and Russia's aggression. And really what emerged from that discussion was, again, concern for a mutual statement of concern for the humanitarian crisis without sort of any mention of India's position on the military front. And so there seems to be recognition sort of tacitly that India is in a tight corner and everyone knows the sort of diplomatic history or the, the friendship history between India and Russia. And so it, it, Again, there seems to be external concerns sort of from a PR front, but in terms of actual um, effect, we're not quite sure what that would look like. Maybe, But they, must be, but they must be concerned, uh, even if, if not overtly stating this, that uh, with the, the, as you say, uh, the, the growing friendship, shall we say, between, uh, between Xi and, and Putin. I mean, you know, Putin was, I guess, the only really world leader that showed up at the Olympics in Beijing. Uh, they had a banquet forum there. They they seem to be BFFs there to a certain extent. And as you mm-hmm. mentioned, they've signed an energy agreement uh, now too for another pipeline, uh, which tells me that that relationship may be getting a little bit stronger. And I would imagine Modi's a little concerned about that. If if he if in fact he's hoping and, and was thinking that Russia is going to be the one that's going to have his back, uh, those China uh, Russia ties could actually scuttle that whole idea. Yeah, and this is this is where the balancing game comes from. Comes from, um, I think India is watching that very watching that relationship very closely. Um, I also think that they do have to take into consideration how far they they think the West will support them, if meaning support India, if China does decide to make some moves in Asia. Uh, and so I think they're watching the positioning of each of. Um, of each of the parties very carefully to see where their their uh, interests lie best. So it really is. I think I think they're finding themselves. I think Modi's finding himself in a very difficult position, um, and that's that's where the the um, abstaining comes from. Is that he's trying to remain as neutral as possible. And I'll just add to that. In some ways, this is very consistent with the dynamic that India found itself in the Cold War. You know, it was one of the leaders of the non-aligned movement. And so in terms of its own internal narrative, there is consistency where it's able to say, listen, we were always unaligned. We go what is in our best strategic interest. And that seems to be a pretty acceptable stance, in, you know, in 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 Indian media and also in the Indian public. And so it, it hasn't sort of damaged Modi, uh, the, the, like the, the um, abstaining at the UN hasn't really damaged Modi internally. And so he can sort of take that as a safe bet for now. If Modi really wanted to, to wean India off their dependence, military dependence, shall we say, with Russia, he's had opportunities, though, hasn't he, Doctor? I mean, you know, in, in, uh, in 06, they, uh, they, they signed the uh, Indo-U.S. Uh, nuclear deal. And, and Washington, I think the phrase they used was made India a major defense partner, which pretty much gives them access to, to what they want. In other words, come, you know, let's do some business. And he hasn't done much of that. Yeah, and I think part of it is the inertia of what the the current military um, looks like. And so I admit there's a lot of incompatibility, technical logical incompatibility between what the the uh, military looks like 
um, now and what it's sort of grown to become be and these relationships with, for example, the United States. So you can't just turn around and have a perfectly integrated military by introducing new equipment. Um, I'm not a technological expert that way, but that seems to be where the hesitation comes from. And they have a consistent supply chain so far with Russia. And so disrupting that for something new and untested doesn't necessarily seem to make a lot of sense. When it comes to the nuclear deal that was signed in um, 2006, I take that with a little, with a grain of salt to some extent, because uh, once the, the deal was signed, the actual numbers of trade that happened, I haven't looked at the most current numbers, but the actual numbers of nuclear trade that happened under that agreement have been pretty dismal. It was more a statement, like a political statement, recognizing um, India's nuclear position as opposed to an actual trade deal that has seen fruition to this point. And it's been, you know, over 15 years. So we take that with a grain of salt, I think. We've looked at this obviously from the geopolitical standpoint. And, and as you say, it's it's a little complicated, as they say in the business. But let's follow the money. Uh, you know, this, this relationship between Russia and India, uh, it seems to me to be, uh, at the best of times, mutually beneficial. But especially now, uh, with sanctions being applied against the Russian economy almost on a daily basis now, there's money to be made here if they continue the, their their deals with India right now. One of the few people I guess they can comfortably uh, trade with now without any restrictions. So this is this is important to Russia at this stage too. Yeah, and India hasn't taken any uh, a particular stance or an obvious stance on on the Western sanctions on Russia. Um, I think there was some early investigation into you know circumventing some of um, uh, some of those sanctions through bilateral trade. Um, particularly in the banking sector, as far as I understand, uh, but they haven't they haven't taken a strong stance on on sanctions. But I think the downstream effects is that the more and more Russia becomes occupied and reliant on its own uh, goods to fuel the war further, that this will affect Indian supply chains, including its its military supply chains. Is India going to stay silent on this? Do you think, Doctor? I mean, I, I, sadly, there, there seems to be indications that this the Ukraine situation could go on for quite some time right now. Sanctions are going to continue. It's going to have an impact if it hasn't already on the Russian economy, and 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 I would imagine there's going to be pressure put on uh, the Indian government from NATO and its allies uh, to take to take a stand uh, on something like this. Can can they sit on the fence on this, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they're you know they're they're kind of leaning towards Russia, but they're still on the fence? Can they do that indefinitely? No, absolutely not. And I, I think I think you make a really good point here. Is uh, is um, this looksy game will will have to will have to end at some point. So the you know there's a couple of scenarios that we see, either Russia continues its aggression and the humanitarian situation becomes so deplorable that, and it already is, but it becomes deplorable to the point that India has to make a choice. That's one option. The second sort of scenario is that um, that India's dependence on Russia automatically gets gets cut off and it gets undermined, and therefore they start to have to think about the longer game in terms of its its relationship and maybe starts to question um, how beneficial this relationship is moving forward. But I think the third thing is that, you know, there have been indications that Russia, you know, is using this as a starting point to perhaps, you know, become more involved in NATO countries. Um, and, and that has been a concern, I think, from the West as well. And then India's stance then becomes much more under scrutiny if, if Russia was to ever invade a NATO country. And so, I think I think this will be a relationship of timing, and also a consideration of the long term gain. Um, and, and, and India is going to start to look at where the tides are turning, and then and then perhaps move in that direction. So, how does the world view something like this? Uh, you know, India, as we mentioned, is an emerging economy, uh, soon to be. We're told, you know, one of the top three economies in, in the world, uh, and and they're moving pretty rapidly towards that goal. Uh, but there's a sense of, among some scholars, some of your your colleagues, that well, you know, they're, they're kind of the Rodney Dangerfield. They, they're great, they're growing, but they're not getting the respect internationally uh, that other major powers are. Is, is it because they they tend to to vacillate when it comes to key issues like this? I wouldn't. I, again, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it um, vacillating because that suggests that there isn't sort of a dominant interest, and the dominant interest for India is is its own strategic interests in its region and if the the vacillation comes from again this this game of chess you know that we often refer to in international relations but the actual motivation behind where their decisions come from has been consistent which is why i think it's it's hard for um the west and other countries to necessarily look at india's position as one that's 
totally detrimental to the to their um, understanding of India. Um, they understand where India is coming from. They understand the geopolitics of the of the region. Um, and and again, I think that this is probably one of those turning point moments more than anything else, where India is going to have to make decisions of whether of course correcting with that fundamental idea um, of strategic interests in mind. Fascinating when you look at the big picture and how, well, the domino effect that one thing happening in one part of the world has this impact on the, in another part. Uh, Dr. Singh, thank you so much for the time today and for your expertise in this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Dr. Anita Singh, fellow with the Center for the Study of Security and Development at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In case you missed it, this is the uh, second anniversary uh, of the day that the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. So many of us have been uh, working remotely uh, from home, wherever, uh, for quite some time right now. And uh, as COVID-19 pandemic uh, marks the second anniversary, more than half of Canadian workers have yet to return to their offices. That's amazing. And a new survey has found out that a lot of them are happy with it that way. They're happy just doing what they're doing remotely. Sandy Salerno has some details. Only one in eight workers who responded to an Amazon business survey prefer to be back in their office five times a week. But being ordered back to the cubicle on a full-time basis isn't so appealing for many others. More than 40% of Canadians say if their employer mandated a full-time physical return, they'd start looking for a new gig, one that was more flexible. And if a potential employer made full-time in-person work part of a job offer, more than half say they'd be less likely to accept it. The best case scenario for the majority of those asked is a hybrid situation leaning toward more days of working remotely each week than in the office. A raise, better benefits, and more vacation time are among the things workers say could entice them to go back to working in the office full-time. Sandy Salerno, Global News. So, rather surprising statistic on this. Uh, let's uh, delve into this and find out just where our heads are at. To do that, we're so pleased to welcome uh, Sylvia Gonzalez-Zamora, who is a partner with KPMG Canada, uh, to give us her perspective on this. Sylvia, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us here today. Thank you so much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Is this the new normal now? Uh, you know, hybrid w uh, working conditions where we're going to do a little bit of here, a little bit there. We're used to it now. Are, is, are both sides, are both employees and employers okay with this? Well, these results are not surprising. Hybrid has been a reality for two years. Uh, a few people have gone or, or been able to be a little bit at the office, maybe the last fall, then come back. So we've had the ins and outs. But definitely what people are expecting today is flexibility. Um, us as KPMG, we did a survey last summer and 77% of the workforce was looking to work from anywhere, have the flexibility, be able to keep their schedule at home, take care of their children, their elders, their pets, and also be able to recognize that their professional success wouldn't be hindered for working from home. They actually are more productive. You know, you've raised a very good point here, Sylvia, because I remember doing segments on this before the pandemic. Uh, and, and there were some innovative companies, and KPMG being one of them, that were exploring this idea and said, hey, you know, life-work balance, maybe we can start doing this. And, you know, it wasn't done on a massive basis, but it was being tried on kind of a trial basis. Uh, then the pandemic came along and we kind of got shoved into it now in a, in a big way. And uh, I know there were, there's some companies that I talked to back in those days that said, well, we're a little nervous about that. You know, maybe productivity is going to go down. People are going to lose interest. Uh, they're not going to be doing the job. They're going to be watching the prices right or something. I don't know what their things were, but the statistics I've seen on this, Sylvie, indicate that those who have been working remotely, first of all, as the survey indicates, are, are pretty comfortable with it. But a productivity aspect, the concern there, never really did materialize. For the most part, productivity is as good as, if not better, than it was before. Yes, absolutely. We are seeing many organizations now recognize that their employees have increase the amount of work they're online, increase the amount of meetings that they're able to respond, the number of emails have gone up. And we have been seeing these uh, productivity now uh, dealing into some of the wellness and the reaction to mental health that we've all uh, have been living for two years. So definitely that's something else to consider that we can raise productivity, but just to certain levels, it's not sustainable to do it any longer as we've had for two years. Uh, which I find fascinating. And, and your point about technology, I think, is, is well taken here. Even within the, the two years of the pandemic, we've, we've improved and technologies have improved so that you can do this. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you maybe didn't have this discussion because all the tools you needed to do your job would be at your place of work, your office, whatever the case might be. 
you know, in the age of laptops and, and, and smartphones and everything else, uh, as you say, you, you can you can be in Toronto, you can be in Ottawa, you can be in London, England, if you want. And, and for all intents and purposes, you can do the same job now because the technology exists for you to be able to do that. Absolutely. Technology enablement has uh, surrounded this pandemic and it's also creating new opportunities for us. So we're now able to, uh, for example, us as uh, management consulting support clients around the world. And we're able now to have friends that send us TikTok messages from any part of the world. So yes, we are definitely seeing the technology enablement and digital transformations has accelerated with this pandemic as well. So hybrid and technology uh, will now be expected. Is it being embraced by, by businesses though? Are they saying, hey, we're, we're okay with this now too? And, and you know, if, if you know, you've, you've got a client or a potential client that says, you know, we, we really have to wonder what we're going to do when we go back. Would, would, should they be opening that discussion about hybrid relationships, even if they didn't have them before? Uh, what we would recommend is definitely listening to your employees and listening to your clients, your customers, your patients, your citizens, depending on what organization you are. There's many stakeholders involved. And if we can continue enabling them with technology, understanding their very specific needs and being flexible and ethical about it. As the national leader for equity, diversity and inclusion in our practice, I see many organizations now moving to consider that S in ESG, for example, to be more socially active, understanding their communities, both internally and externally. Let's talk about, we talked about the balance. I, mean, I want to get into that a little bit more detail in a couple of minutes too. But employee comfort levels, uh, you know, we've always talked about stress, uh, you know, in the workplace and it, it can get awesome. You know, the, the, we went through it after the 09 recession, seems like 100 years ago now. Uh, there was a lot of what they call right sizing. In other words, people lost their jobs, which put more pressure on, you know, people that were still there to be productive. Uh, and there was a lot of people leaving the industries and businesses because they were just too stressed out on this. Are we in a better place now psychologically as 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 workers uh, to say, hey, we have alternatives now, we have options now, because there weren't any options 10 years ago? Yes, absolutely. I think our options are increasing and our employee-driven talent market now is showing that employees are feeling more confident to come as they are, to come as uh, they want as well, connecting through all the technology options that they have. And they're feeling more confident to also put in front of organizations, this is why, this is my purpose, this is what I would like to do moving forward. So definitely we see much, many more options now. I think maybe the word I'm looking for here is empowering, uh, that maybe workers feel more empowered now, that they a sense of worth, uh, that, hey, I can do this and, and you know, I, I've got a place in this company and I'm, I'm contributing to, to what's supposed to be going on here. Uh, which may or may not have been the case previous to this, but you know, because they're they've increased their comfort level, and you know, when when you're comfortable, you're more productive. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think that all employees are feeling more empowered, and and the voices have been heard. And there's many social movements that have helped with this. We've seen that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Every Child Matters movement, the Me Too movement have all given voices to many uh, different communities. So it is now seen as almost like a must to be able to to tell your story to bring up what you need and really have those open courageous conversations with your employers with your leaders and with other colleagues to find the, the better spaces and the better way to collaborate with each other it's, it's there's a plus side to this for the employer though too isn't there sylvia i mean simply because of this hybrid model and because of as you mentioned earlier the technology that's available uh when it comes to recruitment uh, you know, if you're if you're working for Company A and, and Company B uh, in Vancouver, for instance, uh, th thinks you know what Sylvia would be a great employee. You know, we want to talk to her about that. Well, previously that would have meant if, if you take a job in another city, you got to move, you got to sell your house, you got to move out there. You got you can say they, nowadays if in that in that scenario they can say still stay where you are. Okay, you you can work from right where you are, but you're working for us in Vancouver instead of where you're working now. I would think that's got to be comforting for the employer right now because it increases the possibilities of finding and, and retaining talent. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the tools that many organizations are using. We're seeing and mostly in the U.S. Now they're able to cross markets and even cross 
some of the, the West and East differences that they have because the employees have the flexibility to connect from any city. As you said, we had the urban movement with the pandemic. Some people now moved outside of the cities and they're looking to work from the suburban areas where they now reside. And this gives the employer the flexibility to open up for new talent uh, pools that they hadn't considered for also considering maybe even uh, regions where they hadn't been before. And now they have talent all over the place. And, and it's got to give them options, I would think, too. If, if they do develop this hybrid model, I would think, Sylvia, uh, the employer may have a, a, a chance to reevaluate, for instance, that place of work, that office, whatever it is, and say, hey, maybe I don't need 15,000 square feet anymore. Uh, maybe I can downsize my size because a lot of my workers are going to be working remotely most of the time and only have to pop in every now and then. Uh, there are probably a financial aspect and some financial savings to be had here if, if they want to be creative. Absolutely. That's another possibility. Real estate has been reimagined. And even before the pandemic, the future of work was uh, moving to having hoteling as office spaces, for example, not designated spaces per employee, but for groups of employees to use as needed or as ad hoc, or to even to bring collaboration forward. So now in hybrid, if we want to bring the employees back to work and the there's a purpose to socialize. There's a, a space for it that allows for the health measures to be um, followed. We will also see that that flexibility allows both the employer to reconsider the space that they use, the cost behind that real estate, and the employee to reconsider their relationships and their purpose. And that can even result in, in more loyalty to the brands as well. I, I can just see that in my mind's eye as you were explaining that. I mean, in, in other words, you you got 100 employees, maybe you don't need 100 workstations, you know, desks, computers, et cetera, et cetera, because a lot of that's being done at home. Uh, but you may want them in a, once a week or whatever the, the, the schedule would suggest uh, to collaborate, you know, in, in a boardroom or in an atrium situation or something like that, where it's maybe a little more casual, but at the same time, just as a productive, because you're, you're basically you're doing your socializing and your, your group work at the same time. Absolutely. And we're seeing the future of work is more... Uh, towards the gamified experience as well. The employers are driving towards employees to have a good time, to be able to feel the sense of belonging and productivity of being part of a group. And that social network brings us closer together, but also helps us become more productive. It reduces the silos, it increases the communication between functions, and it reduces the, the time from end-to-end -end process, for example. There are going to be some scenarios because where this is not going to be applicable, though, isn't it, Sylvia? I mean, the, the, you can't do a one-size-fits-all and say, okay, everybody now, it's going to be a hybrid model that you can split the time or work totally from uh, your home, whatever the case might be. There are some businesses, I would imagine, based, simply based on, on what they do and, and, and the product that they're responsible for, that say, no, you got to be here. So if you're one of those employees working for a company like that, uh, and you still are reticent about going back. You kind of like what you're doing here from from a remote standpoint. Uh, do you do you begin negotiations with the company? Do you say, look, at, I, I don't want to, but you're going to have to make it worth my while. Uh, and, you know, we could be talking about, uh, you know, more flexible hours, uh, maybe more vacation time. Everybody loves vacation time. Uh, better benefit packages, things of that nature. Do their employees put that sort of stuff on the table and said, let's talk about this? Yes, this is an unprecedented time and it's a, a time to put many options for employees and for the employer to understand those options and put them at the table. Uh, we've seen, as you said, that there's flexibility even in industries where uh, the physical element of the work has to be there. For example, manufacturing companies. And we've talked to uh, Canadian manufacturers and exporters where some of their uh, members are looking at maybe even building more flexibility on shifts and flexibility on the hours of the, the machinery and flexibility on the supply chain because all of these could help then increase the amount of time that people can spend at home like they do right now in certain areas, uh, be able to turn around some of that work-life balance that we're all expecting now, and hopefully then come to an understanding of where flexibility, purpose, and productivity can work together. So th there's going to be a dialogue going forward here, I would think, then between employer and employee. Uh, to say, uh, you know, we always talked, I guess, over the last two years, didn't we, Sylvia, about getting back to normal. Uh, we're not going back to normal. It's look, it looks like not in this standpoint anyway, uh, where, you know, everybody's there, whether it's nine to five or whatever the case might be. You're, you're there usually on a, a five day a week basis and this is your job and these are the hours, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
it just seems as if everything now is 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 on the table and say let's look at a more productive way to do it i agree with you bill this is an excellent time for uh, open dialogues for bringing everyone to the table for understanding our differences and to be collectively open about it and build the flexibility and the freedoms that we would like um, to to keep ourselves happy, productive, sane, and respectful of each other. Our employees, oh, well, they, the numbers indicate that they're pretty comfortable with them are anyway, but have employers adopted to this? And, and because there, there may, in some cases, I guess, Sylvia, uh, be an initial investment. In other words, if, you know, if an employee is going to work from home, you're going to have to get set up. I mean, you know, there's going to have to be tech equipment, I guess, which may or may not necessarily have to be, you know, uh, set up, but maybe, you know, at least another computer. That's another, you know, desktop that's going to have to be installed there. I, I would imagine if that's going to be the, the model going forward, that that's got to be part of that negotiation you just talked about, about, you know, do you supply that? Does the company supply it for you? Uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But those, I guess, are all negotiable, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. There's many things to negotiate with your employees and to recognize the need for. We've seen increase in um, work from home equipment, for example, the chairs, the ergonomic um, ability to connect to new keyboards, for example. Uh, you're also able to understand that technology is not just a, a desktop or a laptop computer anymore. There's secondary and third screens, there's different mouses, there's connectivity from your living room, for example, the Wi-Fi and the transmitters. So there's many digital enablements and technology enablements that we can uh, now offer to our employees and also have them recognize how their own infrastructure is now blending with the infrastructure of the office. There's so many different aspects to this. It's such an interesting topic because, as we say, it's not one size fits all. So it's going to be different circumstances for different companies. But just I'm just checking off some of the boxes here. But you know, this is there's a, a lot of positives here for employees, uh, including the fact that, as you said, if if you're going to work from home, even on a part time basis, you know, two days here, three days there, uh, that's going to save in, in I would think in in costs. You know, if driving costs, I mean, commuting costs, basically to get to and from work. Uh, so there could well be a, a, an employee saving in a situation like that. There's many different costs involved in commuting. Now that we've uh, lived through the pandemic, we know it's the time invested. It's the the back and forth in either your automobile or, or your transit system uh, that's putting a cost in the infrastructure, of course. And then there's also the the amount of gas. We've seen gas prices go mm. up now. So yeah. Many, many questions are in the employees' minds right now as we are thinking return to work. So definitely opening a conversation uh, would be the best thing and enabling them with the technology and the communications and the options and just reconnecting to their purpose. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, that point you just made about the cost of, tra of commuting, especially the cost of gasoline and fuel, uh, is is how current can you be in a situation like that? You know, you, I'm talking to a neighbor the other day and said, you know, it used to cost him thirty five bucks to fill his gas tank. Now it's over eighty uh, just to fill the tank, and and then they got to get in the car. And he says it's an hour to work, an hour from work. Time is valuable to us, and if you just have to walk across the hall to you know your home office and say, here I am, uh, that's a huge saving psychologically and financially. Definitely. The normal definition has changed and we have to adapt to that. Uh, we will be going into a very different world coming back from the pandemic. Well, listen, it's a, it's a great topic and I, I'm hoping that our discussion here today uh, is going to serve as a catalyst for companies and, and, and employees of those companies uh, to have that discussion sooner than later because it looks like we're kind of heading in that direction and uh, companies have to plan for that as well. Sylvia, thank you so much for your input into this. I really appreciate our conversation today. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure. You have a good weekend. Take care. Sylvia Gonzalez-Zamora, who is a partner with KPMG in Canada, talking about the the new way of doing things. And uh, like I say, if you're working from home now, still have after the, the two years now, the second anniversary, it's about time, I think, to have that discussion about when there's going to be a return to work and how that's going to look. And it's going to be very, very different from when it was two years ago, I'm sure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.